0: You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to Garibaldi Red, the Nottingham Forest podcast from Nottinghamshire Live. And today we are joined by a Reds legend. We've spoken to a few former players, but none who have achieved what uh, our guest Gary Birtles has done. So we're very grateful to have you on, Gary. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Good, 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 good. Um. I wanted to talk to you uh, about your career, but kind of through the lens of playing for Brian Clough, because we talk a lot on this podcast about modern-day Forest, and we might touch on that a bit. But uh, a lot of people won't kind of appreciate the genius of Clough. They'll have heard about him, obviously, but you've played for him. Um, do you remember your kind of first meeting with Clough because you signed from Long Eaton? You were kind of plucked from nowhere, weren't you? Can you kind of uh, uh, elaborate on that, that first encounter and how you arrived at Forest?
1: I arrived at Forest after he came and saw me in the, I think it was an FA Cup qualifier at Enderby Town. I don't think they exist anymore. Mm. Uh, And I was playing and uh, I think their centre-half went straight through me and split my pad. I had to come off. But I came back on and carried through the game. And uh, I think at that particular point, he said my performance, uh, the the half-time Oxo was better than my performance on that particular (laughs) day. Uh, but he stuck with me and gave me the opportunity and uh, I had a month's trial and then they signed me.
0: Um, We're we're live streaming on Facebook as normal, so if you do have any questions for Gary, do drop them in the comments section and I will put some to him later on in the show. Um, When did you find out if I were interested then? I mean, it must have come like a bit of a bolt from the blue for a lad who was fitting carpets in Long Eaton. That must have been a bit of a shock.
1: Well, there were rumours going around. I actually nearly signed for for Peterborough, United, because uh, John Barnwell and I think it was Noel Cantwell at the time came to see me at Gedling where we were training and uh, tried to convince me to sign for them. But a guy called John Rayner, who um, I was with at Clifton All Whites when I played for them, who then became the chairman of Long Eaton, told me to wait because he'd heard Forest were interested. And it, if it hadn't been for him saying that, mm. everything you know i achieved with the team and everything might not have happened i might not have got the opportunity so i've got a big thank you to him uh, for what he you know the advice he gave me on that night
0: obviously uh brian clough will go on to change your life uh, you know set you on a totally different path and make you successful do you remember uh, i've asked other players about their first meeting with him do you remember that first meeting vividly in terms of how nervous you were and, and that kind of thing
1: uh, the first encounter really was um, a strange one because uh, when you when you sign, you're not the first team. You're in the away dressing room, right. uh, and uh, before you go training, and there was a little desk table in the corner, and for some reason, I was sat on it. And he usually came in through the where the player players entrance is, where the referees room is, but for some reason, he came through the double doors where the boardroom now is, saw me sat on the table, and said. So I'm, get off my table now, <laughs> uh, just to let me know that he was in charge, you know, and that was going to be the way it is from that point on. And, uh, yeah, nice introduction. You know who's the boss and uh, then you get on with it.
0: What was it like going into that Forest dressing room? Obviously, they weren't the, the team they became, but they had a lot of players who would go on to achieve so much alongside you. What was that initial dressing room experience like? Well, you're
1: always nervous. All through my career, you know, when I went uh, to other clubs, Manchester United, even Grimsby, you know, you're really nervous of going in because you don't know anybody. Uh, You want everything to be okay, And luckily, again, you know, all the lads were fantastic. You know, there was no egos. Uh, Everybody tried to make you feel welcome. Yeah, there was competition for places. You know, the people who were in your position probably thought, oh, crikey, somebody else is here. Um, But it was, you know, it was a good introduction. And Frank Clark was a massive help to me. Uh, going through that early phase, you know, going to training and everything. I remember that really well. So I've got a lot to thank Frank for as well. Um, But, yeah, I settled in quite well.
0: What was life like for a new professional footballer in 1976? Obviously, the money was different. Was the lifestyle particularly different from what people say about it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, coming off building sites, working in the middle of winter with no heat, freezing cold, you know, when winters were proper winters in those days. you know to go and do that on a daily basis was just an absolute pleasure and delight uh you know laying floors you you are in confined spaces with uh adhesive that you're putting on skirting boards that you know you're floating if you're in a tight you know little area you've to keep getting out because it was that strong <laughs> uh, so to be going training running out in the open air was an absolute pleasure and uh you know one I'm
0: profoundly thankful for you made When did you make your debut? 1977 again. 1976.
1: In... Yeah, I think it was 76 against Hull, Hull City. In the then was the uh, second division as they called it then, and Billy Bremner was supposed to be playing for them at that particular point, midfield. I was playing in midfield, which I didn't particularly like, because I came as a striker. Mm. Um, but Billy Bremner was injured, and um, I played in midfield. I think we won the game, didn't score, and my performance was particularly average and <laughs> um, Brian Clough said son if I ever play you there again give me a shotgun and I'll shoot myself. Uh, so that was you know the impression I made in midfield for, with Brian on that particular occasion. Did you think you were done at that point? You think you'd blown your opportunity or not? Well I I, I couldn't understand at the time why he, play, he was playing me mid, in midfield when I was signed as a, as a striker but I think it was to build me up because I was mm. skinny you know I was um no weight on me. I think it would just get my stamina up and, uh, you know, get me up to, you know, the standard that he expected. Uh, so looking back, it was good for me. And I was a good athlete. You know, I love running. Uh, so it wasn't a problem to me. And I started, you know, getting a lot of confidence, scoring goals from that position. And uh, eventually I got uh, my place back up front, which is what I wanted.
0: I remember Steve Chattell saying he made his debut as a right winger at Chelsea. And did some kind. Of, he did odd things. Obviously, at what point did you realise he he was a, you know a different manager, but obviously a genius to go with it? Did that hit you straight away?
1: Uh, well, going back a little bit before I actually got there, I signed a petition uh, in the Palais, which is no longer exists. Palais de Dance it was called. It was it had the first revolving dance floor in the country, <laughs> right. and uh, I went out on a night out, and there was a petition to get Brian Clough to Nottingham Forest. It was just mm. long, long sheet of paper. You know, it was just absolute reams of paper with people. Uh, and my signature was on that. Um, so hopefully I played a part in getting there. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was just... Uh, and then I quickly became his squash partner because he, mm. he knew I played squash. I love playing squash. And I, I, I was thinking of trying to take it up professionally at one point because uh, I was turned down by Aston Villa when I was 15. And, um, you know, it was... It was a strange introduction. I was often taken off the training pitch by one of the apprentices saying, guys, you've got to come and play squash with a gaffer. So, I caked in mud, I had to run back up, get in his Mercedes, go across to Trent Bridge cricket ground where the squash courts were mm. uh, and play squash. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a strange introduction as well. I can't see that happening today. You can't see uh, Raheem Sterling or anybody like that going to play squash with Pep Guardiola, could you? I
0: wouldn't have thought yeah. No, well, you can't see a kid from Curzon Ashton ended up in May, not in a few weeks later either these days. No, I, game, suppose I suppose not. But, um, yeah, it was it was a bizarre introduction, to say the least. Did the playing squash thing give you a different insight with him? Did it uh, give you a different relationship, do you think, to other players had with him or not? No, it didn't make you a favourite, if, if anything. Mm. It, it was the other way. Um, I can
1: remember playing for the reserves where the games used to be at the city ground and we were playing Derby, uh, of course, the big game. And I thought I played an hour squash with him in the morning. So I thought if my performance wasn't particularly good, he'd be okay with me. But all you could hear right through the game was him having a go at me. And it <laughs> echoed round the ground. You know, his voice was strong anyway, as everybody knows, Yeah. but it just echoed round, and, you know, he was giving me so much stick and, Again, it's another learning curve for you. You don't expect because you're doing one thing like that, playing squash, that you are a favourite. You have to earn the respect, you know, in, in what you're there to do, which is play football. So, you know, good early lessons, and uh, you know, you took them all on board.
0: Did you beat him at squash? Were you allowed to beat him?
1: No, he used to cheat a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, if anybody knows squash, if if you go across the opponent. Hmm. Uh, you're supposed to ask if, you know, you, would you like that again? In, in professional squash, that would be straight away. And he always used to ask me, son, would you like that again? And I always used to say, no, you're OK, boss. Because I was in the reserves then, you know, I think I played him a couple of times after I got in the first team and changed my mind after that, saying, yeah, I'll have that again, please. But when you're in the reserves,
0: you just don't even attempt that at all. Um, you hit the ground running when you did get in the team, didn't you? You scored against Liverpool... Early on in in the European Cup, and the, you had early success. How did he keep your feet on the ground, and how did the other players keep your feet on the ground if they needed to? Um,
1: well, the first my first game debut was against Arsenal on the Saturday with uh, Gary Mills, who was 16, making his debut on the same day. Um, so we beat them, I think two one. And when I came off, he said, "Son, your name's first on the score uh, the team sheet for the Liverpool game." And you think, "Well, yeah, okay." But yeah, you picked me, and yeah, got my goal, and had a hand in the second one. Um, My third game was the Saturday after Old Trafford away, so not three nice easy games uh, to introduce you into the first team, um, which was probably good because Mm -hmm. you know the standard that's being set, you know what's expected of you, and uh, luckily, you know, it all went well for me.
0: Um. What was it like playing? I mean, obviously, you were a local boy. Did the Forest fans take you straight away? Does that give you an advantage, you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, your mates were always there. Your family's there. It really does help. Um, you know, I used to go and watch from the dad in the children's pen in the Trent End, you know, when I was a kid, um, when they, you know, the 67 team, when they came runners-up to Manchester United and got to the semi-final of the FA Cup. You know, we all remember the great Everton game that Ian Storymore scored the hat-trick in. Um it was that era, you know. I went to watch them, so uh, you know I was a big Forest fan anyway. And uh, yeah, to to play for your hometown team is just an absolute privilege. And you know, you, you you tend to, I would think, to give a little bit more because of that. And you want to please the fans, and you know the fans are always brilliant with me.
0: Um, obviously, Brian uh, did some different things to you know ease your nerves, keep you motivated, that kind of stuff. I know there's a classic one about shaving before the cup final. Can you tell listeners that either that story or something else that sticks out about ha- ha- the kind of man management things that he would do with players?
1: Well, that was the European Cup final, the first one, um, mm. and we were obviously in Munich, and it was red hot. And uh, we all were told to get into the garden of the hotel and wait there for him and the gaffer, uh, the Pete to come down. We'd all put our stuff on the coach and he came down and I was nervous as hell because I was, you know, along with Vid, the two youngest players. But Viv had got a lot of experience at that point and he could see I was nervous. And I always used to keep a little bit of stubble. You know, it was just something I did before a game. You know, and he saw it and said, son, what's that on your chin? I said, well, I always do it, Gaffer. You know, it's um, it's something I do before a game. And he said, get it shaved off now. I said, well, all my stuff's on the coach. You know, it's all packed away. He said, right. He said, I've got a shaver in my room. He said, has anybody got any aftershave for Gaz? And Chris Woods? he was there as well. You know, goalkeepers always have little man bags with everything in. Uh, he had some aftershave. He said, right, get up there, get it shaved off and get back down here. Chris, go up with him. So, Woodsy came up with me, got it done, and, you know, it made me bleed a little bit. So, a little bits of, you know, toilet paper on it to stop mm-hmm. it bleeding, as you, anybody who used to shave in those days with the old shaver's nose. But he did it, looking back, just to take the pressure off, to give me something else to think about, uh, going to the stadium. Because we used to get there about just a, an, hour, an hour before the game. Yeah. So, you know, it took the pressure, got me thinking about something else, and you only realize that when you look back and think why so he was a genius in man management and uh, all the way through you know my career and you would ask any other the players at that era would say the same you know he was just a genius
0: with man management so he would handle different players differently obviously that would work oh, yeah. for you that wouldn't would he be very different with Kenny Burns and Larry Lloyd then for example absolutely
1: because those two weren't afraid of him at all you know they give yeah. us you know as good as they got um, you know, the, the famous story with Larry with the suit uh, when we're all told, I think it was Athens we are coming back from and we're all told to put the suits on, you know, the blazers and the uh, grey trousers and we all came down and Larry came down in shorts and uh, we'd all been told and whether he was just trying it on and, uh, you know, Larry was having none of it and we got back to uh, Nottingham and we had the meeting on a Friday in the boardroom and, um uh, Larry got the uh, the red tree, you know the trick the letter with the tree on it, which was a fine. Right. <laughs> right. So it was, I think it was about two hundred quid, and uh, Larry said not paying it. <laughs> he said, right, okay. He said every time you say that, I'm going to double it. He said okay I'm not paying it. So he kept going up, you know, double it, four hundred, eight hundred. He said, I'm still not paying it. And I think eventually he, he paid the two hundred quid. So that's how it was in those days, and. Uh, yeah, it was it was a pleasure to be there because day to day you just didn't know what to expect. Mm. You'd go in one day, he'd run you, and if you'd had a bad game or something, you think, well, he's going to run us, and he'd walk you up the Trent to the uh, little cafeteria that's still there on the embankment, buy your tea, a soup, whatever, walk back, and you think, right, okay, we're going to do some running. He said, right, I'll see you Thursday. This is on a Monday. Uh, bring your passports in. We're going to call them all. You know, and, <laughs> you know, you think, well, how how can that? not lift you and that was again man management you'd, you'd probably not had a good game you'd through a game and all of a sudden you're going to Spain for three or four days you know how good's that and if that doesn't lift you as a professional nothing will and you know rejuvenate you it lifts you and you know you go out and perform again
0: you talked about man management a lot there was that his greatest strength then above anything else in terms of tactics or signings all that kind of stuff
1: well, he knew who he could put an arm round and he knew who he could give a rollicking to and the response he'd get. You know, I think they went into things like that, him and Pete, uh, individually. They they looked at players, knew what players' strengths were, what the weaknesses were, who they could, you know, really uh, have a go at and the ones that, you know, weren't particularly good at taking, um, you know, rollickings off, off them. And that's the way it worked. And, you know, he, he kept things simple. He never ever sort of said right you've got to go go out and do this if you're in the team you were you knew what you had to do you knew what your job was and you didn't need to be told once you're in the team that was it you know if he didn't do what he expected then you're out the team Uh, and that that was it and he said I don't care if you have a bad game if you give me 100 he said I'll come on the pitch and carry you off myself you know when when you've got a manager saying things like that to you it gives you a lift because you know you've just got to go out and give everything you possibly got you're going to make mistakes but he never he never dwelt on your weaknesses Mm. that was the beauty of it he knew he only dwelt on what you were good at and you know that gives a player a huge amount of confidence going out on the pitch and uh, that was a big part of why we were successful I think
0: um obviously he's got the reputation you know of weren't mess with him the, the brilliant interviews and all that so there was uh did you ever get to know a kind of a softer side or a different side to him that was different to his reputation because you knew him obviously until the day he died
1: um not a softer side probably when we'd retired you know when we mm. would no longer play for the club and we would packed in football myself and John Robertson used to go down to city ground And Robo used to do the telegraph crosswords, and you know, the gaffer would see us and said, You know, are you going to come in for a coffee or whatever? And yeah, we said, Okay, gaffer. He said, You know, no, don't call me, you know, call me Brian. But we could never do that. We could never bring ourselves to do that because he's the gaffer. He's always been the gaffer. And it was, you know, sort of sacrilege to be caught, you know, saying anything else. And uh, yeah, it was total respect, you know, for what he did for us. And, uh, you know the the other thing I remember the one story that you know I always tell about when we were going to Q eight um, this is another side of him that was you know something you you, you ought to know about I suppose uh, it was a Sunday um, we we're going to Q eight for a, a game that meant nothing and I was injured and um, it was after the European you know the, the European team was broke up. And uh, we were told to be at the city ground for nine o'clock on Sunday. We are going down to East Road to fly out to Q8, And I was livid because on a Sunday it was pub day. You know, pub open at 12, local mm-hmm. pub, the Cadland. Used to be in there. Um, have a few pints in the afternoon. Go home. Uh, watch a bit of American football. And then we used to come back at night time and have a few more pints. And uh, that wasn't going to happen that Sunday. So I got to the ground, got on the coach. I was at the back of the coach and having a right, you know, moan with all the other lads saying, you know, what am I doing here? Should be in the pub, blah, blah, blah. The gaffer comes a bit late, comes to the back of the coach. and I made sure that he could hear me a little bit. <laughs> uh, then he said, right, son, out with it. What's, the, what's your problem? And I said, gaffer, you're taking me halfway around the world. For a game I can't play in, I think I'd be better staying here, get myself fit and get back in the team. He said, son, you're right. And Albert, the bus driver, were down Wilford Lane by that time. He said, Albert, stop this bus. So he stopped the bus. Gaffer jumped off. First car coming the other way. He stands in the middle of the road, puts his hand up. Old guy gets out. He said, Can you take Gaz back to the ground? He's not coming with us. So probably a guy going to church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so I jumped in this guy's car, he drops me off, gets in a car, goes home, in the pub, uh, gets back home get a phone call mid, mid-afternoon mid Sunday from Ian Wallace Then mm. what are you doing you know no mobiles in those days he said I said what are you doing phoning from Q8 he said not in Q8 he said I'm back in Clifton so what do you mean you're back in Clifton he said well we went down there got on the plane and the takeoff was aborted they had to come back down again and the gaffer never liked flying everybody knows he hated flying mm. and he got got up said to the stewardess, young lady, open the door, we're getting off. And she said, well, you you can't, you know, you can't do that. Young lady, open the door, we're getting off. (laughs) So he marched the whole team back across. (laughs) Party lounge. The elders had gone back to the bus, so they had to get another bus, and everybody went back home, so nobody went to Q (laughs) Eight.
0: Uh, I'm going to just read a couple of comments out, and then I'll put a question to you. Um, this will strike your ego a bit, Gary. Um, Gary Birtles is the greatest. That's from Paul Carrington. Um, Lee Tilston, no questions, but I met Gary a few times in recent years and just want to say he's an absolute gentleman, everything you want your idols to be. and I'm sure any Forest fan who's met you will appreciate that. Uh, Sean Murphy, been lucky to meet Gary a few times, a real gentleman um and oh here's a question i think we've touched on this before but um it's from rich thor do you think cluffy was the gene was the genius because of the simplicity because of the simplicity of how he explained the game is, is that a fair comment from rich do you think oh,
1: absolutely spot on You couldn't have put it any better myself it, it was the simplicity he never complicated things he always believed that you were better than anybody else he we never did any homework on teams uh, we respected them, yes. He always said, Respect your opposition, but you're better than them. Even the great mm. Liverpool side, who you know we beat for two years, you know, they were the best team in the world at that particular point, and we were the only team that could beat them. And uh, yeah, it was that that simplicity it never complicated anything whatsoever. He believed in you to go out and do the job that he was paying you to do, mm. uh, without mm. a doubt.
0: Uh, Glenn Page also says, You're a legend, Gary. Um, is it nice well, to I'll hear? Tell, I'll tell you what, I'll
1: tell you what about why I. I learned a really good lesson uh, with me and my dad. We went when I was a kid on a Sunday mornings of were signing sessions at the City Ground. Mm. And uh, all the fans used to go down, the players used to sign things, and I went down with my dad and got he got to me and they stopped signing things and they refused to sign. And I remember that vividly. One of the one things I do vivid remember vividly, uh, my dad said, if you ever get in a position, always remember. On your way up, people remember how you are. And on the way down, if you were disrespectful to them and ignored them, they remember that as well. Mm. And that was one of the best pieces of advice I ever had. And I always remembered that. And I never, ever turned anybody down in all my career. Even when I go commentating now, when people, you've got old books still coming to sign, mm. which, for, you know, when you're in your 60s and people still want your autograph, is brilliant i never turn anybody down, uh, never have done, uh, because it's a privileged position. Pr- position. Mm-hmm. You know, to play professional football is something so many people want to do, and I was one of the lucky ones to be able to do that. come from a council estate in Chilwell, you know, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity that was given. And if you can't be bothered to stand and sign autographs, well, then you don't deserve to be in that position. You know, that's part of your job. And it was mm. a great part of the job, you know, signing mm. autographs, cracking people still want you to do it. How good is that? You know, so my dad gave me some great advice
0: at that point. Um, I'm just going back to kind of insight into how it all works and how you were so successful as a team. I mean, who, what was training like then? Because obviously Brian was a great player. Did he get hands-on in training? Or did Peter Taylor do that? Or was it someone else's role, tactics and all that kind of stuff? Neither of them involved mm-hmm. very often
1: at all. Um very rarely did we see them on the training ground. They never came and did any tactical stuff with us. They used to come down at some point with their dogs. Uh, Pete had Bess and um, the gaffer had Del Boy. And they used to come down and just watch things. And the only thing they ever did was, right, they come down the gaffer and said, right, everybody, run through the nettles now. There was a little corner in the training ground with a clump of trees, loaded nettles, where the uh, groundsman used to dump his manure. Yeah you got 16 grown men running through nettles and then you come out the other, the other side and he said, right, last man in the five-a-side nets. you got 16 grown men throwing themselves into a five-a-side net. <laughs> uh, how ridiculous is that? I mean, yeah. would, you, would you see Manchester United and Jurgen Klopp do that with players now? Mm. No, you wouldn't. Um, and it was to lighten things up. You know, it was because we played a lot of games. You know, in those two seasons, I, I counted all the games I played I think I was about around about 136 games I played in two seasons. That's with pre-season games, friendlies. And as anybody will tell you, there's no such thing as a friendly in the eyes of Brian Clough. Every game was like you were playing Liverpool. Mm. So, you know, you had to be, there had to be light moments. There had to be, you know, serious moments. And he blended the whole thing really, really well. And uh, you you just used to love going in, no matter how tired you were and uh you know it's just a joy to be part of it
0: i was going to have this as one of my last questions but um i'll ask it now because you've sort of touched on it do you think his methods would work today or would he have evolved his methods to fit football as it is how what would brian, how successful would brian Clough have been managing in 2020 do you think
1: he would have adapted to that he used to write for i think it's uh 424 magazine or 442 magazine the hmm. 442 magazine i think and i used to read that and. Uh, as the years went on, he, he, he went along with progress. He wouldn't have stayed situated in the past. And, th- and that European Cup final, the second one would tell you that story because we lost Trevor Francis and Gary Mills came in um, and it was 4-4-2 we were playing, me and Gary up front. And after 10 or so minutes, we were getting absolutely battered and he dropped Gary back into midfield. So we got five in midfield and me up front. And that was in 1980. So you talk about four five ones. Mm-hmm. They saw the danger then and said, right, okay, we're changing this after 10 minutes. You don't often see that very now in the modern game. It's all like substitutes. Oh, you say on the hour mark, well, all the subs are coming on. Yeah, there's an hour gone in the game. It's all quite predictable. Um, But, you know, he had the foresight to try and change things and he would have changed things and he would have adapted. And the biggest crime ever that um, the FA never gave him the England job because we'd have won something by now if, if he'd have been uh, the England manager at that
0: particular point. Uh, I appreciate I'm a bit all over the place here, but going back to the season when you won the league, um, how did he? I wasn't in that. I wasn't in that team. But ah, uh, okay. But from what I you've heard uh, from people, how or, or okay, when you won the European Cups and when you were there, how did he manage um, the rapid progress you were making and? you know, keep you grounded and keep the momentum going? Because you were obviously, even though you were champions, you were still massively overachieving, weren't you, as a club?
1: Well, when you look back now, yes, we were. Um, and you, you listen to what Graham Sooner said. It's probably the greatest story that's ever happened in football. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Larry Lloyd said that and he said, I think Larry's right. And for Graham Sooners to say that, you know, you sit up and listen because he, for me, is one of the best pundits on, on television, and that team of Liverpool's was, was so very, very good at that particular point. And f- to have that accolade from somebody like him means an awful lot. And he did keep your feet on the ground. Um, you know, we, we used to do so much off the pitch, going to hospitals. Uh, I remember myself and Viv playing wheelchair football at uh, Mansfield. You know, used to send players in pairs, you know, to do things around the community. And that was just to show you how lucky you were. Mm. And, you know, you realised how lucky you were. And, uh, you know, you took all that on board. And Anybody who didn't do that were very much out on the heels very quickly. Mm. You know, you had to do that. You had to be part. And you wanted to do that. It wasn't you had to do it. You were pleased to do it. And I know players do it now. It doesn't get publicised as much now. I think players get a hard time sometimes because a lot of people don't see exactly what they do behind the scenes. But we were doing it back then. And, uh, you know, we we loved every minute of doing that as well.
0: And it's fair to say, he had a big social conscience, didn't he? He had, he was a, had strong political views. So he did that translate into football like you talked with the, the hospital visit and all that stuff?
1: He never brought politics into it. We all knew you know, what, what he was about and yeah. uh, um, how strong he was in his beliefs in everything he did. Um, but that's what made him the manager he was. Mm. Uh, if he didn't have those beliefs, you listen to his interviews. There's been an ITV programme on just lately. Um, of our triumphs in there, and you listen to him, he said, you know, if the players can't see me believing, well, what chance have they got to believe in? And, you know, that was it. His strength was being on screen, being that confident person, ultra confident. You know, when we, the 3-3 in the semi-final against Cologne, if you're daft enough to write us off, that sort of comment. And that, again, lifts you as a player. And he was brilliant at that. And um, even the players who probably didn't like him and, and get on with him as much, you know, even now, would say that without him, their careers wouldn't have been what they were. And uh, you know, those sort of accolades will ring true for a long time.
0: Um, when you got picked for England, I know Stuart Pierce said that he kept him down to earth by saying he was he didn't deserve to get picked and anything like that. Something like that. Do you remember? what it was like when you got picked for England and what he said to you, or is that too far, too long in the past?
1: I don't think he said a great deal, actually. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was sublime because I, I signed in 1976. Uh, I was laying floors, um, playing for Long in Rovers on a Sunday afternoon and Long United. And within, what, four years, um, I'd won two European Cups, a Super Cup, a League Cup, Scored four at Wembley in the final, two disallowed, and been voted Young European Player of the Year. Mm. You know, from a, in four years. So that just tells you, you know, the impact he had on me and what he gave me. And you know, the, going, you know, through, you know, the sort of the lockdown and coronavirus and things like that. You know, it's 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 easy to get yourself down, but you know, the discipline he gave you in those years really helps in this sort of situation. You know, your mental strength uh, he gave me particularly coming, you know, as a, you know, a raw young lad from non-league, uh, you know, really it's help, really helped me and helped me in good stead. Mm-hmm. And you remember those things, you know, from, for many years. You remember the good times of playing, but mm-hmm. you also remind, remind yourself of what he did for you off the pitch as well.
0: How much did you change as a person in those four years, if at all, do you think, because you've gone from nowhere to <laughs> stardom? You
1: know. Yeah, you do. And, you know, some of it wasn't good. Some of it you're not proud of. Uh, At times, you know, you probably get uh, above yourself a little bit because of the euphoria surrounding everything. You know, those two years were just incredible, those two years when we were winning things. And you were that wrapped up in what was going on. Sometimes you probably did things that you shouldn't have done that you're not proud of. And, um, yeah, I'm sure all of us will say that. But, you know, you try to be sort of humble about it and um you learn as you get a little bit older um certainly that you know that's the way it should be and uh that's why we've never craved anything you know the the team that won those, all those things in that that particular time we've never craved the fame we've never you know sort of chased after it it's just johnny owen bringing that fantastic film i i believe in miracles mm. that put us back in the public eye and uh you know, we were just going along a merry way. Yeah, we won what we did. We are delighted with it. But, you know, we never sort of bragged about it. Um, it was just, you know, our job to do that. And that film just put us back on the map a little. And the club. You know, because what Brian Clough did at that particular time wasn't just win those things. It put Nottingham on the map. Mm. You know, you used to go on holiday at that particular point, And people say, you know, you made friends on holiday, as everybody does. Where are you from? Nottingham. Oh, Robin Hood. You know, and that was it. But then years later, you know, oh, Brian Clough, Nottingham Forest, absolutely fantastic. And then, you know, Torvald and Dean, you know, the Knotts cricket team winning the league. And, you know, Mm. all these little things put Nottingham on the map. But Brian Clough and Peter Taylor were a big part of uh, putting Nottingham on on the map at that particular point. And, uh, you, you know, you've got a lot to thank them for in that respect as well. Not just the football, but putting Nottingham on the map.
0: Do you regret leaving Nottingham? I've spoken about it to you before in your column. Obviously, you went to Man United, and it didn't. It worked out in a way, but you obviously had struggles there as well. Do you wish you'd never gone there now, or not?
1: No, it taught me quite a lot. Um, I didn't want to go particularly, um, but I was. My hand was forced a little bit. uh, The one time I probably had a falling out with Brian and Peter was at that point. Um, He did something put something in Shoot magazine saying that. you know, everything I got, you know, the car I got was because of him. The house was because of him, things like that. And my mum read it and it upset her. And, you know, when your mum's upset, you're upset. It's probably, you know, he was trying to wind me up as he, he did. But it got to me a little bit. And uh, Manchester United was always my second team. because of George Best. And, um, you know, the opportunity to go to Manchester United doesn't come up for everybody very often. So I went and, you know, just fully expected to carry on being successful. And uh, that didn't happen. Mm. Um, my debut was at Stoke away, went round the goalkeeper. It was torrential rain, uh, weaker right foot. It was going in. I hit the target, um, but it stuck in the mud. And the fullback just slid right across the line and hooked us off the line. Mm. And then Everton the uh, was my first home game. Curled the ball round. Seamus McDonough was in goal at that particular point. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Hit the outside of the post. And those two go in. It's a different career. But then I got a bad injury that not a lot of people know about. It was called, I think, synthesis pubis, which is a stress fracture of the pubic bone, which Ray Wilkins had. Uh, he'd signed just before me, and he was out, and I got the same thing. And he told me how bad it could be. Uh, you can't do anything. You can't drive a car. All you do was walk, and nothing mm-hmm. else. So I missed out a couple of months and had to catch up, which wasn't easy, you know. But you, you know, you talked about pre-seasons. It's so much needed. And uh didn't help and then I couldn't score to save my life. And all the jokes were there, you know, uh, coming out with the you know, first thing the hostages, of the Iranian embassy, you know, uh has Burkle scored yet. And uh you know, if I'd have shot John Lennon he'd still be alive today and those sort of things, you know. And uh
0: Did that but, get to you?
1: Um Yeah, Luckily, I, I think it went the other way. You know, uh, I nearly killed myself on the way back from um, Manchester because I was still living in Nottingham. And um, I think it was the Everton game, We'd been beaten by Everton. And uh, Dave Watson, the good, terrific centre-half, um, I think he was making his debut. And I played against him. He never gave me a kick. and a bad game again. And it was torrential rain. I was going back through the uh, Ashbourne Leak route back to uh, Long Eaton. And I was going around a corner and I had ACDC on full blast, not concentrated, lost control of the car going around a corner and skidded across the road and ended up, luckily, there was a farm, farm up there and the, the iron gate was open. Oh, so right. I went across and, you know, came to didn't hit anything, just came to rest. And it was a route where um, the aggregate lorries, you know, all drove big things with, you know, heavy loads. So I've had a bit one of those. You know, it would have been nasty, to say the least. I just sat there for a few minutes and thought, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, nothing's that important that you're feeling like this. And uh, that really helped. You know, it changed around. I started scoring. Frank Stapleton came to the club, which really helped me. And, uh, you know, I started enjoying it again. And, um, yeah, but you have moments in your career where you're down in the depths. That was one of them. But, you know, you've got to get yourself out of it.
0: So, how did you end up back at Forest then? And you, did you have to rebuild your relationship with Brian if you left on not bad terms, but you said there was a bit of a cloud? Was there any rebuilding to do or not?
1: Um, no, because, you know, he wanted me back. You know, mm. he, I heard when I heard that, uh, you know, Brian wanted me to come back, I'd have walked down the M62 um, to come back um, because, you know, I love Nottingham. I was missing Nottingham, miss your friends and everything. I mean, that's crazy because. You know, it's a short career, so you should be able to uh, adapt to things like that. But when things aren't going well for you, you want to go back to where you feel safe, I suppose. Um, you know, I signed, you know, a lot of... Uh, if I would stayed at Manchester, um, I signed a five-year contract. My house would have been paid for. Um, I had to sign a way um, of signing on fee. I waived it because I was desperate to get back. I, can I? Am I allowed to say you know how much it was to... You'd like to say what? Uh, you... Am I allowed to say what it was? You know, I signed away to come back to Forest?
0: Yeah, go for it, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I could have stayed there. My house would have been paid for through the contract. I signed away £40,000, which in those days. It's yeah. a lot of
0: money now, yeah.
1: So I said, right, no, I don't want it. I just want to go. I just want to go back and play football. Uh, so I signed away all that um, and came back, scored on my debut on the way back uh, when I came back and just slid back into it like I'd never been away, which was, you know, lucky, because sometimes it doesn't work like that. Mm. And, um, yeah, it the success wasn't as good afterwards. We got to the semi-final of that um competition where Anderlecht cheated us. Mm. Um, that's as good as it got. Um, but, yeah, it, it all went well. I started playing centre-half. He, he asked me to play centre-half there, and apparently I nearly got called up for England to play centre-half, you know, which, you know, Extended my career when I went, you know, to Notts County and then finished up at Grimsby. Um, yeah, so it, it all worked out quite nicely.
0: I'm going to ask you about the Andalek thing in a minute. Um, <clears throat> when you came back to Forest, was it a different club and was your role different? Obviously, Nigel Clough was coming through and it was a, a different kind of squad. Was there, Did you notice that change or not?
1: No, it was it was like coming back home again. Yeah, there were, there were some players still there. Um, I think Ian Bowyer-Robo, I think, was still there. Um, other players were coming in Paul Hart came in Uh, Nigel was great Um, although his dad took the number nine off me and and gave it to him Mm. which I I didn't enjoy but it wasn't a problem Um, we still laugh about it now because we're very good friends with Nigel Um, and yeah it was just like stepping back into a family atmosphere again and uh, you know the the players with Colin Walters coming through people like Steve Wigley uh, Steve Hodge Chris Fairclough you know, we signed Kenny Swain, we, Hans van Breukelen came in, you know all these great players. Uh, Frank Tyson came in, you know it was a, it was a great time to play and um, it was particularly strong at that point. You know the the Premier League or the First Division as it was, um, yeah. But it was it was competitive. It was good and I thoroughly enjoyed when I came back.
0: Um, just on the Andalax game. I mean, for people who don't know, the referee was Bride. Um, and that all, you know, that all went through the courts twenty years later. Um, when you were there at the time during the game, I mean, I've watched it back. Some ridiculous stuff going on. What was it like playing in that? And what was it like afterwards in terms of how the manager reacted to it?
1: Well, I, I wasn't, I didn't start because I was just coming back from a spinal fusion. I had a spinal no. fusion in uh, nineteen eighty four, and I came back. I was on the bench uh, for that game away. And I could see what was going on there. You know, I didn't know what had gone on in the dressing room. The gaffer had seen the referees room, which was across from where we were. Officials keep going in and out, and the door was open, and that's not supposed to happen. We didn't see that, but you saw what was going on, on the pitch. And the penalty was the most ridiculous penalty you will ever see in your life. If anybody's seen it, mm-hmm. Kenny Swain was nowhere near him. Uh, the other goals were good. The um, you know, the great player, great free kick, um, Taker, scored a fabulous goal, and they were they were a very good side. Uh, but we had that goal disallowed late on, uh, Paul Hart's header, which was nothing wrong with. I was close to it. No foul, no contact, can't be offside from a corner, nothing. We were celebrating, referee had given a foul. Next minute, they're going up the pitch. Mm. And we just couldn't believe what had gone on. And, you know, there's a sense of disbelief after the game, just total silence in the dressing room. We wondered what had gone on. And then when it all came out, we could understand why. And, you know, a Spanish referee saying he had a loan off a Belgian football club just didn't ring true. And uh, I, I feel so sorry for all the lads, you know, in that particular team who hadn't won things before. You know, I was lucky enough to be part of the team that had won things. You know, people like Paul Hart, um, you know, would have been great, would have been a all-England final against Tottenham, who we, we, we fancied we could beat. Uh, That didn't happen, and it denied a lot of those players the opportunity to to win something. And that's what rankles more than anything. And then for their owner and chairman to then come out and admit it when he knew the number of years had run out where they could be punished or we could claim compensation, that rankled even more because you're cheating us and rub it even more now. You know, Mm. went to court... We went across there, you know, trying to get the get the compensation for for what happened, but you know the slippery owner, and it's still the stadium's still named after him, which again rankles, you know, as much now as it did then. Um, but you know, you think UEFA or you know somebody'd step in and say, right, you, you're out of order, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, but you know they were weak and they didn't, and uh, it still really rankles.
0: Um. You Left Forest in the end. Was it 1987? You left, you moved on. Yeah, was it? it was. Yeah, what was it like then? You kind of, um, been such a big part of your life where you got it to go, or did you feel it was time to move on? How, how did you I view it? I didn't want to
1: move on. The, the, the gaffer thought it was time to move on, and when I retired, he said he, he came to me, uh, when I was down at the ground, he said, Son, he said, I'll let you go a year, at least a year too early, you know. Yeah. That, uh, that was one of the worst days of my career because I didn't want to leave. I still think I'd, I thought I'd got something a little bit to offer. And uh, it was the year that I think Coventry beat Tottenham in the FA Cup final. Mm. And I was that fed up, you know, with football. I didn't even watch the game. I went and played um, golf at Woolerton Park um, because I, I just didn't want anything to do with football at that particular point. Um, but you get over it. Um, you know, went across the river to Notts County. Nearly got promotion. we were top of the table all season and went into the playoffs and lost in the playoffs, which again was a, a big disappointment. Um, but then went to Grimsby and got a couple of automatic promotions uh, at the back end of my career, which you know I enjoyed as much as winning European cups because Alan Buckley was brilliant um, when I went there. Um, you know, I asked him. I said, "What sort of football do you play?" You know, he said, "We play four four two. We pass the ball." Uh, blah blah blah. I said, "Give me a pen, sign there and then." And uh, he was true to his word. And we had two great years to so work. I worked with some you know lovely young players who absolutely loved what they were doing. Um, met up with Keith Alexander, um, who I played with non-league way back in the young Elizabethan League, and you know it was nice to catch up with him again and play with him at Grimsby. So yeah, I, I was so fortunate in in my football career. Um, you know to come from you know where I came from you know Chilwell you know you, t- you talk about council estates and yeah it was you know were great people up there still see them now and on the streets and you still see you know you still have the banter with them and uh, yeah you just realize how very very lucky you are to have been part of you know all that you were part of
0: uh, there's lots more comments saying what a nice bloke you are I'm not going to read them all out because of no, the doing already. Uh, Glenn Page asks who do you keep in contact that we used to play with Gary are you still in touch with many of the ex-Forest lads yeah we, we took, before the
1: virus came along we, we go out on a Thursday afternoon myself Robbo Colin Barrett Frank Clark John McGovern pops in uh, Johnny Owen um, we go to Westbridge uh, Westbridgeford to you know, a couple of beers uh, on a Thursday a- afternoon which is really nice. Um, yeah, and you still get to keep in touch with other... Pl- Nigel I keep in touch with, you know, very much so. Um, yeah, people from different clubs i played with, you, you, you try and keep in touch with. And uh, it's nice to do that because, you know, it, it is a football family and, uh, you know, you, you want to be part of that and, and continue to be part of that.
0: Last Brian Clough question. What was it like... What was your relationship like with him in later years? Because obviously he'd struggled with drink for a long time. He was back in, you know, he got his life back on track in that sense. But was he still a very much like, sort of a father figure or a great mentor to you throughout, even along Massively. the yeah. Massively, yeah.
1: Um You know, he always said, remember who you are, where you are and who you represent. And that sticks in your mind forever. You know, I talked about the comments from my dad, but that from Brian remember who you are, you know, where you come from and, you know, where you are when you're out, you're representing the football club, you're representing your family. And that, you know, I've tried to bring all my children up the same to have those manners, to have those morals uh, that I was given by, you know, my parents and and Brian in particular. And, you know, when Nigel phoned me and uh, told me his dad had passed away, it was, it was like losing somebody of your own family really was. Um, you know, because the impact he had on you was just immense. I remember where it was. I uh, Pulled up the car, and um, yeah, he, um, he he asked me uh, if he could give the family sort of uh, four or five hours, and then uh, you know I was to tell Sky TV and the BBC and everybody else, you know, the Evening Post and things like that. And uh, yeah, it was it was uh, you know. A, an earth shattering moment, really, because you thought he was invincible. You know, he was one of those characters. But he came into when we were doing the radio show at um, Capital. Mm. What was it called? Yeah, I can't remember what it's called. Trent. Trent. No, it was. It's now Heart. Yeah. It was Capital kind of, anyway. Um, you know, I did the football phone in with Kenny and Alan Burton, Roger Davis, Darren Fletcher. You know, he used to come on. And this is the. This is this is another thing the effect he had on people. Alan Bertinell is one of the most confident, cocky people you will ever wish to meet. His a lovely bloke, would ever wish to meet in your life. And he was an a, he was a, an absolute wreck. He said, what will what, what, what I call him? What will what, what I say? Uh, you know, what have I got to do? And he was an absolute equivalent wreck. He, I couldn't believe the difference in him. And that's the sort of, impact Brian Clough had you know he was one of those you know when you see um going into a room the room stops it goes silent you know when he walked in that's the impact he had you know so much charisma it was incredible and uh you just wish there were more like him now because it's a bit sterile now you know you ask you know manager interviewed and about decisions oh I haven't seen it yet didn't see it and blah you you wish to come out and say yeah not impressed with that but that's the way it is Mm. Brian was a one-off uh, that we never anybody like him and uh, we feel so lucky that we had the opportunity to
0: play under him I'm just going to finish up with a bit of a memory test for you like I said I said before we started this I was going to <coughs> ask you some questions from old programmes these are from the 80s uh, and I think I found three and your answers are all very consistent so I think you might do quite well on this Quick fire ones um, who was your football hero in your childhood George Best yes Why? Just because he was just that brilliant? He was just
1: flamboyant. He was different. He had everything. He was brave. Uh, He just had everything. He he could head the ball. Um, He could go both ways. And John Robertson, in that respect, maybe not as good a header as... But, you know, I I look at Robbo and still marvel over what he did as a player. A right-footed player playing on the left wing. Uh, Yeah, I just used to love George Best.
0: Last couple. This is um, from the mid-80s, so you might have changed one name. Favourite food and drink. This was for, I think, an Old Forest programme. Do you remember what you would have said your favourite food and drink was? I would think steak, and I, would, I hate to admit it, lager and lime. Yes, point. yes, any steak.
1: Yeah, I, I, I soon got rid of the lime, by the way. Oh, dear me.
0: <laughs> any steak, Dover, sole, lager and lime. Oh, so Dover, Sol.
1: I still, I still love fish now,
0: yeah. Um, miscellaneous likes and dislikes. What basically? What are your hobbies? Do you remember what your hobbies were about? Uh, then? Hobbies were squash. I, was I saving beer mats at the time, or something like that? <laughs> it says collecting records. Oh, record!
1: Collect- it's still got a good record collection. Yeah, and hates uh, false people.
0: Yes, false people yeah. in all the programs. always hated.
1: Yeah, I've always hated people who are. Uh, yeah, they're not true. They're not. You know, you can pick them out. They're not. They, they, they come across as okay, but. They're not really. Um I, I like people who are honest and um you know straightforward and I just couldn't stand people like that. Still still the same, but uh mm-hmm. that's me. I'm sorry.
0: Uh favorite holiday destination? Oh my word, this is difficult. Yeah.
1: Um, I used to go to place in Wales. I don't know if it's that's that's still
0: there. It is, yeah. Yes, more, more, for yeah, more for I'm glad you presented it. you've announced it. Yeah. 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 Um Favourite singers?
1: Alice Cooper. Yes, um, who would have ACDC at that time? Could possibly yes. have been on there, yeah,
0: yeah, and Mike Oldfield was the other one.
1: Oh, that no, was only because of tubular bells, that's the only reason.
0: For ah, the tubular okay. bells. Uh, and lastly, which people would you most like to meet in the world? There's two answers you gave,
1: yeah, Jimmy Connors and Alice Cooper.
0: Yes, very good. Did you meet yeah. them?
1: No, never, unfortunately. I loved Jimmy Connors. I just loved what he gave on a tennis court. He just gave everything he possibly had. He possibly wasn't as um, talented as the Borgs and the McEnroes, but my word, what he put into a a game of tennis was just incredible. And that's how I approached football. You know, I tried to give everything I possibly could during the summer break. I would try and tick over. So I was well prepared when I came back. You know, I could start. Running straight away and not feel overly bad with it. Um, so you try and at that point be as professional as you can. And um, you know, I, I watched him and I thought, well, if I can do that, what he does on the tennis court on, on a football pitch and trading wise, I'll be happy.
0: Brilliant. Well, I know we've spoken many times over the years for your column, but it's been a real pleasure to give people a good insight into your own career. And and we're playing under Brian Clough. I uh, really enjoyed it. Hope you uh, enjoyed it as well. Um, Thank you very much for everyone who's listened in. There's lots of comments saying what a good bloke Gary is. Um, we really appreciate that. I thought you um, talk about the present day? Oh, do you want to talk about present day? We've got I five minutes. Exactly done about yeah. Did you want to? Okay. Um, let's have a look at some of the questions. What do you? What's your verdict on VAR?
1: Well, as a commentator, I, I had to go down. Every commentator and co-commentator had to go down to. Um, the place where VAR is, is held near Heathrow and uh, go through everything. You had to sit with um, screens in front of you with uh, some of the guys who were doing the um, VAR. And they give you different scenarios in different games of, um, you know, what what you saw and what you do and what your uh, decision would be. And that was really insightful. Um, And Neil Swarbrick was there, you know, the referee who, who oversees it. And uh, it, it looked good at that particular point where, you know, I picked up on something they'd not seen as an ex-player in the decision-making. And I said to Neil Swarbrick afterwards, I said, I honestly think you should have an ex-player in there mm. because some of the a couple of the things there as an ex-player I saw that the referees didn't see and you've not, you know, they've not been picked up on. And I think, you know, referee having a referee in there, but an ex-player in there as well to balance it up, would be an absolute perfect scenario. Um, But obviously it fell on deaf ears. It's still not uh, being incorporated. And I think it would be a real innovation to get ex-players involved because they see things differently. And, you know, you can bounce off each other. You've got the time to do that.
0: Let me ask you a couple of quick present-day Forest questions. Um, What did you make of the end-of-season collapse? Could you see it coming or not?
1: Unfortunately, I think the answer is yes a little bit because... I think we're a little bit lucky at times. Um, I look through the season, you know, the stats and everything, because I I do that as a co-commentator. And uh, there are only two games in the whole season where we went behind in a game and came back and won it. Two games. And that Mm. was Luton at home and Stoke away when Stoke were having a nightmare. Mm. So that tells you, you know, if we score first, you know, we sit back and we encourage pressure. And that's what caught us out in the uh, running to the end of the season. The Derby late equaliser, the Sheffield Wednesday late equaliser. And I, I just think at times we're lucky because if Lewis Gravener got injured, what would have happened? You know, he, he, he stayed fit. Um, and we rode a, a lot at times. We look good at certain points, but you watch the two teams who went up and the way they went about the business. Totally different. Totally... Positive, um, you know, went for it, thought they were the better team. Uh, I just thought the, the signings in the windows were particularly poor. Um, that let us down. And you just hope that's um, that will change. But the one big plus for me was the structure of the club. What mm. Mr. Maranakis had got the people in the right areas, the chairman. You know, Johnny Owen got involved in the uh, media side of it, which massively improved things. Um and everything off the pitch seemed to be spot on. Um anything get it spot on on the pitch, um, yeah, then anything's possible. But it's gotta happen, you know, this season. Um I mean the last day of the season, reading getting somebody sent off just before half time didn't help. But mm. at one one, you expect, you know, to be able to be professional and hold on. I, mean, I just wondered at times why Michael Dawson was kept on the bench because if he would have come on in a, two or three of the games with his experience, with his leadership, with his voc- vocality, I think we would have come out. We, we, we'd have been in the playoffs, but it, you know, it was a young, it's a young side and at times that we got caught out because of that. Um, but let's just hope we can, you know, bounce back this coming season, get the signings right uh, I, I think we didn't have a plan B. That was, a, that was that was a big problem for me. If we went, you know, late on, if we went behind or whatever, it seemed to be a scattergun effect. You know, right, who can we throw on the pitch here? And you say, right, him, him and him. And, you know, there was no real, um, if it's going wrong, what can we do sort of thing. And, you know, it's a learning curve for Le Moucher, obviously, because he doesn't know anything about the championship. Um. It would have been maybe innovative to get somebody who knew about the championship in to help him out. Maybe he had that, I don't know. Um, but, you know, let's hope lessons have been learned. But, you know, just hopefully the structures kept the same because that was the one big thing about the new the new stand and everything like that going to happen. Everything was good off the pitch, but it didn't quite happen
0: on the pitch. So, you know, that's, that's probably the perfect summing up of it. Would you object if I ended the show? I think producer Dan's got a meeting at 11, so I was going to... Oh, bless. To oh, bless.
1: Yeah, not problem. not problem.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we pleasure. really do appreciate it. Uh, if people want to give us the review on Apple iTunes, listen on Spotify, Acast, watch us on YouTube as normal. Just search Gary Boldy Red in all the uh, podcast apps, and we have been live on Facebook. We'll be back uh, next week, but uh, like I say, thanks very much to Gary. It's been a real Pleasure. pleasure and we hope to see you all thanks very much guys see you all everyone thank you for listening to Garibaldi Red a Nottingham Forest podcast if you enjoyed today's episode then please let us know we love hearing your feedback we'll be back soon with another episode thanks for listening